might be said, and I thought for the sake and the privacy and the comfort of the family, it was better just to to speak directly with them and, and no one else be listening in on it. However, there were some things there, some scriptures that I covered, and I've added a couple to it since, and some thoughts that I, I think we should consider uh, as a group today, and I'm not in any way seeking to put any blame on anybody, but one of the things that comes up in our minds, and it's inevitable that it will, is why. And that is true, uh, whether it be in the church or out of the church. Anytime a disaster occurs, family members may be lost, people as a whole across the world want to know, why could this happen? How could this happen? Couldn't this have been prevented? And why did God allow it? And so on and so forth. All kinds of questions come to mind. And those are very difficult questions to deal with. They don't always have an answer. Or if an answer comes, it is not always an immediate answer. Sometimes things play out in time and can be better understood a year, two, three, ten or fifteen down the line than they can right at the moment. So it is only natural when something happens that that question comes up and sometimes it's very difficult to wrestle with, to resolve, and sometimes it cannot be resolved but just remains there as a heavy question sometimes for a long, long time. And I'll show you some examples of that. It's one thing, I suppose, for us who might have reached a ripe old age, you know, somebody 70, 80, 90, 95 years of age, if they die, you don't question why so much. You know, it's a point that all men wants to die. And, you know, you get old and things happen and you deteriorate and finally you just die. And it's natural, and it's acceptable. But when a child dies, or when a young person dies, Eric was 35, then it's an untimely death. And therefore, it raises different emotions and different feelings, and we question why a lot more in those cases than we might have with someone who, with whom it was time to die. Ecclesiastes talks about there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. There's a time to sow and a time to reap and so on and so forth. So these things do happen, and sometimes they do happen to God's own people. Should they? I want to turn first to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, this whole section through here is really good because... David was suffering all kinds of trials, troubles, tribulations, and difficulties. And he had deaths in his family. Uh, He had horrible things that happened in his family. And as we shall see, he did some horrible things to his family, for that matter. And how that all played out. But here in Psalm 34, it's kind of in the middle of this section. It says, I will bless the eternal at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. This is an attitude uh, that we must have and must maintain. 
Sometimes things look pretty bleak. Sometimes things look pretty dark. But we always have to deal with whatever is on our plate and never change this attitude. We have to believe. We have to know deep within and be deeply committed to our Creator. To the world, sometimes things happen and people say, well, God is not fair. Esau and the Edomites that have come from Esau today believe God is not fair. And they are going to take their vengeance out on us, Jacob, as a result of that attitude. Esau became very bitter over circumstances in his life. And he sought repentance carefully and with tears. But once he allowed that bitterness to come into his heart and mind, it was apparently for him as a human being impossible to expunge. He could not get over it. Now, sometimes a root of bitterness can start out very small, or a little distrust, perhaps, in our Father in heaven, a distrust in his word, a distrust in what he may allow to happen. And it can grow until the point that it becomes a tree of bitterness in our minds. Herbert Armstrong said at times, and I think that he was right, the bitterness is probably the hardest thing for a human being to overcome. Once we allow ourselves to get in a bitter attitude, that bitterness is just so difficult. You know, you can have a sweet taste in your mouth, and you can drink something, and it'll go away pretty quickly. But if you have something really bitter on your tongue, it takes a lot of flushing <laughs> to get that off. It doesn't come easy sometimes, and certainly with the mind and emotions. I will bless the Eternal at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Eternal not in anything else. There's a place in Isaiah that says, if you glory at all, glory in that you know God. That's the only thing we have to glory about. So our boast has to be in him. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. If we bless God, if we have an attitude toward God of love and toward all things that he does because he knows best. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand why God does what God does. But he knows best. I've used the example of our children. In some cases he has not called them in this age. There are many, many people in the greater church of God who have their children out in the world and they wish, oh how they wish, their children were called and converted and we're looking forward to the first resurrection, to be part of the bride of Christ. But God doesn't call them. And sometimes in our futility and frustration, we give in to temptation and try to call them ourselves, or try to steer them, or try to make them do, or influence them to do, or whatever, things that they are simply not prepared to do. And... All it does is increase our frustration 
because we want something to happen and we can't make it happen and God doesn't want to do it. But we have to learn to take a look at the bigger picture at an overview and understand that all children that have been born on the face of this earth are the children of God. God so loved the world, all the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. But whoso believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But we understand, don't we, that there's an order of resurrections, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and that each will have opportunity in his order. And God knows what his plan and his purpose is for each and every human being that is born on this earth. They may die as babies, they may die middle-aged, they may die old, they may never be called, they may never understand, they may be Hindus or Buddhists all their lives, for instance. Now, we might think it would be good to call everybody now, but God knows better. He knows that most people, if he opened their eyes to see, would reject and shut their eyes and turn away and be lost. So he doesn't do that. He will call them after they have seen terrible carnage in the millennium when they will be humbled by everything that has happened and ready to listen. Or he will allow them to die and bring them up in the great white throne judgment. And there they will have been humbled by death and circumstance leading to death and ready to listen. They're not ready to listen or to commit perhaps now. But the overall point I want to make on that is that God loves them more than we do. That's hard for us to grasp. God loves every one of our children far more than we are capable as human beings of loving. And he has the right balance of gentle love and the right balance of tough love. He knows what they need and when they need it and when and how they will best respond to him. Now, we always think that our way is best and they ought to be called now, maybe. Or sometimes we allow ourselves to think that way. And what we are doing <clears throat> is becoming somewhat arrogant, somewhat prideful of our approach and our children, and what we think is best for them, instead of humble and contrite and bowing to God's overall wisdom and his knowledge and his desires and allowing him to work with our children as he sees fit and submitting to his will. It can be very difficult for us. But after all, do we trust God? Do we believe God? When he says he loved the whole world, and yet look at the whole world. It's a mess. It's not in a savable position. But those people, after they go through what they go through in this life, will be resurrected, and most of them will be ready to listen. There will be a change of attitude, and he knows it. 
So Satan's trying his best to destroy mankind, but God has a plan that's going to save us in spite of ourselves and in spite of Satan. We need to believe it. Faith is so hard to come by for human beings. To trust someone you cannot see, you can only look around and see what he's done. And just seeing what he's done should make you believe that he's a great and loving being with a creation we have around us. He says that's how we come to know him. But it's still hard to trust somebody who could make butterflies. It's hard to trust somebody that could make baby ducks. Why is that? We are so stubborn and so selfish so often. My soul shall make her boast in the eternal. O magnify the eternal with me and let us exalt his name together no matter how difficult things may seem. I sought the eternal, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And tears, we could add, I think, to that. They looked to him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the eternal heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So he's recounting the difficulties he had been in, and certainly death and loss in a family uh, creates terrible feelings and hurt and loss. And there is no human way to sympathize in such a way as to relieve that hurt and that loss. And don't we all feel rather helpless when someone is in deep hurt and mourning and wish we could do something and there's really not anything you can do other than support and pray for and and help? And Marty did ask that we continue praying for her and the family. Um, And she also, I almost forgot it, I did forget it until now, uh, said that she hopes to get thank yous for cards and letters and flowers and things that were sent. And I said, don't worry about it. You know, that's just one more thing that she has having to deal with. And if it's a week or two or three down the road before she gets herself together to the point she can deal with it, Uh, That's no problem to any of you, I know. It was just done out of love, and I didn't want her to feel like she had to right away answer those things or acknowledge them. She says they did arrive, and I appreciate them, and they do help me to realize that I do have something more than just my physical family. I have a spiritual family that cares. And that meant a lot to her, to receive cards and letters and maybe calls and, and flowers and so on from people that she might not know real well, but who do care enough to at least send a note and say, I'm sorry, and you have our sympathy and our prayers. Sometimes that can be a support and a help. This poor man cried, the Eternal heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Eternal encamps round about them that fear him and delivers them. So God says he'll be a presence around you. He'll camp with you if you fear him and be delivered. O taste and see that the eternal is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. O fear the eternal, you his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. He will take care of things. Does that mean things won't happen? Well, this wouldn't have been written if some bad things didn't happen. Bad things did happen, and David was 
writing about it and how that he had gone through hell on earth, if you will. But ultimately, God was there to give him the comfort and the help and the strength that he needed. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the eternal shall not want any good thing. It's all about seeking God, serving him, and he will show favor toward us. He loves everybody, but those who will seek him, he takes a special pleasure in. Just as we love a child who is obedient and respectful and loving more than anyone that's always resentful. I mean, we love the resentful, rebellious, pouty, upset child. We love them, but it's sure hard to have the same kind of feeling for them that you do to one who's compliant and loving and trusting and responsive. It's just harder. It's a harder chore. Some, some people are easier to love than others. Come, you children, hearken to me. I will teach you the fear of the eternal. Here's a man who had been through a great deal and was going to go through a great deal more. But he realized that fearing God and obeying him was the key, ultimately, to success in life on this earth. What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, we, we do, don't we? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. The eyes of the eternal are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now, doesn't he say that he's turned his face from us in this time right now that we're in, but that he hears our cry and eventually turns his face to us? So he is not in a situation where he does not hear that cry. And there comes a time when he can't stand it any longer and will hear the cry in turn. He heard the cry of his people in Egypt. And when the time was right, he delivered them. He has a history of that. The face of the eternal is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. So mankind as a whole is going to die. God is not going to turn it around for most of mankind until later on. But we understand his plan and that that will eventually happen. The righteous cry and the eternal hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The eternal is near to them that are of a broken heart and save such as be of a contrite spirit. That's echoed in Isaiah where he says that he responds to those who have a broken and contrite heart when we are humble and meek inside, not proud, not vain, not full of ego and self-righteousness. Then he says in verse 19, what led me to this chapter in the first place, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the eternal delivers him out of them all. So he tells us in so many words that if we are righteous, we are still going to suffer many afflictions. That's the way it is. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. It is never said that it will be easy. God tries us as in the fire. As silver and gold is tried in the fire. Silver and gold comes out of the ground. It generally has a lot of impurities in it. 
and it has to be heated. It has to be processed, refined, until the evil, the foul, the dross, the impurities are burned out and it becomes clean and pure. And that's the way it is with us human beings. We would love to be righteous overnight, wouldn't we? We would love for all our problems and difficulties to just go away. But there's nothing in the Scriptures that says that it's just poof and suddenly everything is good. It doesn't work that way. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So we will have trials, troubles, difficulties, things that are almost unbearable. For God said He will not put anything upon us that is beyond our ability to overcome, to handle, to deal with. It may seem impossible to us at times, but that's the way it is. This life is boot camp. I don't know how else to describe it. Boot camp is very, very difficult. You go through a lot in the training process to become a soldier of man. And we go through a lot to become a soldier of Christ. It's just what it takes. And there is nothing that is, will come upon us that has not been upon others. We need to turn to God with our whole hearts. And I think it's important for us not to become judgmental. You know, we can ask why. We can ask that question, and we can look at the Scriptures, and we can understand that in this life we're going to have difficulty. But we don't necessarily need to determine. Now, maybe... As humans, sometimes we want to determine what caused this. We want to know. And we want to pin the tail on the donkey. We want to be able to say it's so-and-so's fault, and here's why it's so-and-so's fault. And I think that that is something we need to be very, very careful about getting into. Because it is a pit that is fraught with a lot of danger. And we can make judgments that God might himself not be making. Let's go to Matthew 10 for a moment. Well, let's, no, I want to go back to uh, Ecclesiastes 9 first. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Well... I know I'll find it. There it is. I'm going to go back to chapter 8, verse 6. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. Now remember that this book, Ecclesiastes, is the only book in the Bible that's really written from a purely human standpoint. Solomon was a very, very wise man. God had given him wisdom in the affairs of man and also wisdom in that sense from uh, God as well so that he had a lot of godly wisdom and certainly you can see that if you read the Proverbs. 
But this one he wrote from a purely human standpoint of things that happen to human beings on this earth, just as life goes on, generation to generation, without God being involved. Chapter 9, verse 5, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, God won't forget them. We understand that from the rest of the Bible. But as human beings, we are just a small blurb on the face of history. Most of you, if you did not meet them, don't remember grandparents or great-grandparents. And it doesn't have to go back very far until that memory is just simply lost. It's gone. People spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out who their forebears were. In many cases, it's a futility. I remember one of my great-grandmothers because she was alive when I was a child and I could sit and listen to her tell stories about the old days, covered wagons and whatnot that she was in. So I remember her, but my great-grandfather, I don't have any idea about him. So we don't make much of a dent and then we're gone, generally speaking. Here's uh, the one I'm... Oh, here's, here's where I really want to get down to. So, verse 11, I returned and saw unto the Son that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, just because we happen to have great physical strength or uh, can run very quickly or whatever, neither yet bread to the wise. There are a lot of wise people that are poor. There are a lot of real idiots that have a lot of money nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happens to them all. And I think that life and death in this day and age, this can be applied to not just in terms of wealth and understanding and, and uh, success in this world, but even in life and death. Children are born dead or die a day or so after they are born. A lot of people get killed in wars. Uh, car accidents, all kinds of things happen to people on this earth, don't they? Time and chance happens to them all. And people wonder, how could this be? How could this happen when it happens in their family or among their acquaintances? And yet, as we look at the broad spectrum of human experience on this earth, time and chance does happen to them all. But I do not believe that time and chance happens to the people of God those who are called out, those whom he has decided to open understanding to in this world and to work with. I don't believe time and chance happens to them. I believe that God is very concerned for them and that he has them very much in mind and that if anything does happen, maybe it would be time and chance, but in some cases he intervenes and stops it and sometimes he passes on it and allows it to happen. And I think that probably most all of us could look back in our lives and see, now that we're a part of his church and his understanding, things in our lives where God may have caused things to happen to bring us to where we are today. That he might have started very early in our lives. And many of us can recount experiences where we really could have died very easily perhaps should have under normal circumstances. I certainly can. 
And yet here I am alive today. I don't know whether I'll finish this sermon or die tonight. I have no idea. That's up to God. But I do believe that if he lets me die, there was a reason for it, a very good reason that he had in mind. Because I can point to times when I think he did intervene in my life and keep me from dying. And yet there will come a time when he's going to pass on it and say, He's going to die. It's just hard for us to understand that. Let's go to Matthew 10. And I want to give you some scriptural thought on this, not just my idea of what I think. Notice chapter 10 of Matthew. And when he had called to him his twelve disciples... He hadn't called the world. He didn't call together a bunch of people. He didn't say this to maybe a multitude that might have happened to hear he was in the area and they'd come to talk or listen to him talk or to be healed or whatever. The things he says in this chapter, he called to him. He had a specific purpose in mind in this particular dissertation that he gave his disciples to no one else but his disciples. He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Then he names them and told them to go to the lost house or the sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach and gave them power to heal, to help, to strengthen, and so on. He told them in verse 17, Beware of men that they would deliver it up to council, they would scourge them, they would try to kill them, and in fact, ultimately, they were all killed but John. Verse 18, You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. There would be a purpose in them being brought before the courts of the land. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. I'll be with you. I'll put words in your mouth even. You don't have to sit and worry. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? God will give you what you need. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. So he told them, (coughs) when troubles arise, don't worry. I'll take care of what needs taken care of. And he said things would get dire. Verse 21, the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. It would and will, before this age comes to a close, come to that point. Hard for us to believe, isn't it? Hard to accept, hard to see. But Matthew 24 echoes that, and that many would be deceived would betray one another to the death. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. So if you think our troubles are here today, they've only just begun. We are going to be hated if we follow Christ, if we're his disciples. We're going to be hated of all men on earth when this thing comes down. They're going to accept a false Jesus as their God. And only the few who understand will reject their Jesus. Only a few. 
Let's go on down to the point I want to really make here. Verse 26, it says, Don't fear them. There's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak you in light, and what you hear in the ear, that preach you upon the housetops. Don't be ashamed of it. Preach it, speak it, teach it. Let it be known. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in the grave. Now, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? They're not worth much. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father being aware of it or knowing it. Without him. It won't happen without him. God is very concerned with sparrows that don't amount to much. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear you not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Now, I always assumed, and perhaps we all have, that God numbers the hairs of everybody on earth. Is that what this says? No. No. Who's he writing to? He's writing to his, or he's talking to his disciples. And he says, your hairs are numbered. Now, does he number the hairs of everyone on earth? Maybe. Maybe not. The very point, though, here is when he was speaking to those followers of his, that their hairs were numbered. Now, would that have been a big point if he numbered the hairs of everybody on earth? How would it set them apart as being special in any way if everybody's hair was numbered? Well, it wouldn't. But he was setting them apart here for special use, sanctifying them for a job to be done. Just as today, we are sanctified to do a job. And he was telling them, you are special to me. You're special to God in heaven. And he numbers your hair. That was part of the specialty. That was part of him showing how they were important to him. And based on that, if he'd counted everyone's hair, I don't think that would have been any big point to make. But to us, our hair is numbered. And a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground of one of his people, one of his disciples or anything happened to one of his disciples that he doesn't know about. If he knows about the sparrows, he certainly knows about us. So I don't believe time and chance happens to us. If he counts your hair, he's pretty concerned. That goes back to the thing I was talking earlier. How many of you count your children's hairs? Doubt anybody's here ever done it unless they were born bald and only had three and you wanted to be sure they had some. But God numbers our hair 
and I expect that of our children as well, because they're sanctified by our obedience and set apart. So God has care for them as well. So things happen. We don't always understand why, do we? But we do know that we're sanctified for holy use and set apart. And God does that himself. Sometimes he allows these things to happen. And we grope for answers. But we've got to be very careful not to become self-righteous or point the blame at others. You know, I, I've seen people who've survived a bad train wreck or a plane crash, and maybe 170 people were killed on the plane, but two or three may have survived, or one has survived. And almost invariably, those people will get on the camera when they're interviewed, and they'll say, well, it was a miracle. God saved me. And I always think, were well, you any better than those 170 that died? Why didn't he cause a miracle for all of you if God indeed performed a miracle? He could have prevented the plane from crashing. He could have kept anyone from dying when it crashed. But you were saved out of it, and suddenly you consider it a miracle. Now, the person isn't thinking about how arrogant that sounds. They're not thinking about how self-righteous it sounds or why they are so much better than everyone else who died. They're just so glad to be alive that they say, well, it must have been a miracle from God, but they don't realize really the portent of what they're saying. So I understand that. They're just thankful to be alive. But it does beg a bigger question. But from the standpoint of human beings on this earth, Time and chance does happen to them all. And if you happen to sit in a certain seat, you weren't crushed, and you sat in a seat in front of it, you were. It's just time and chance. But I don't believe that of us. God has sanctified us. He set us apart. He has a particular time for us to die, and he will allow it to happen under certain circumstances. And what are his reasons? Don't always know, do we? Hard to answer. Wish I could tell you the answer to that, but I don't always have it. We all want blessing, don't we? And God says to Israel, why will you die, O Israel? Why won't you obey me? Why won't you serve me? But you choose to die. There's a verse right back there in the Psalms 30-something, uh, right in that area that I saw. My eye didn't fall on it this morning, but it said, God seeks life, or God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to die. He wants us to live. But he wants us to live eternally. This life does not mean nearly so much to God as eternal life does. That's why he says, don't fear them that can kill your human body. Fear him which holds eternal life in his hand, because that is far, far more important than this physical life. And yet we cling to it sometimes so very hard. Now, we would love to be blessed. We would love to have all our problems answered. We'd love to have all of our departed resurrected, even now. We would love to have 
all kinds of things happen that we can imagine and wish for. But it doesn't come right now, does it? Now, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody and giving some general principles here. But remember that case in Christ's life when he went back to Nazareth to visit? And it said he couldn't do any miracles there. He only healed a very few sick folk. He managed, barely, to heal a few sick. But he couldn't do any great miracles because of their unbelief. Sometimes we limit God. We tie his hands by our lack of belief and trust. And I think that in these circumstances, which come from time to time, not just here and now with the present mourning and loss that we are suffering, but as we go through life and as we go from trial to trial and trouble to trouble, we need to grasp that faith is going to be very, very rare on the earth before Christ returns. The truly trusting Him with everything in our lives is hard for us to do. And sometimes even when He wants to bless, it is unbelief that gets in the way. He said, if you had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you could move mountains. That much faith is a very tiny amount of faith. But sometimes we say, I believe, but there's a little doubt in our heart. A little doubt. And God says, when we believe, without doubt, things will change. He tells us, as we've said many times, when we seek Him with our whole heart, we will find Him. And it was our lackadaisical hearts that led to the problems we have in the church today. And God said, because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out. And somehow, somewhere, we must turn with our whole heart so that there is no doubt deep in our hearts that God is God and that He can and will answer us. And things are going to turn around. And we're going to have the lame healed. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. Those things are coming. What is it going to take for us to come to believe in God without doubt? To pray and expect things to happen. I don't think we can drum that up of ourselves. I don't think we are capable of believing that well or that much. We must have help from God. And yet, even an unconverted man came to have that kind of faith, didn't he? Remember the centurion? He said, hey, I'm over men. If I tell them to go or I tell them to come, I know what's going to happen because I said so. And they know what will happen if they don't do what I say. So when I tell them to come or go, it's going to happen. I know it. 
And if you be the Son of God, and you say it's going to happen, I know it's going to happen. And Christ said, I've not seen that kind of faith all anywhere in Israel. This unwashed, defiled Gentile could have that kind of trust that Christ would fulfill what he spoke. We must go there. We must come to have that attitude. And sometimes we can begin to feel that we're so special and so important and so self-righteous that we tie his hands. Now, yes, we are special to God in that he has called us, not because we are mighty and noble. We're the weak and the base who are called to come to have the kind of faith and trust, obedience and belief in God that it will confound the wise. That's what we're called to do. That's going to be Quite a sight when it happens. But it's going to happen. So it's easy for us, perhaps, sometimes to say, well, you know, who did something wrong? Who sinned? Who had a wrong attitude? Why did God allow this? And we might begin to try to pin a tail on a donkey. I want to go to John 9. John 9. And as Emmanuel passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now they understood that healing is a forgiveness of sin. They understood that we are cursed because of sin, that bad things happen because of sin, generally speaking, in man's experience. And God does have blessings and cursings for obedience or disobedience. So they'd been schooled in these things. So when they saw a man born blind, they wanted to know why. Who sinned here? Emmanuel answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. He's blind, but nobody sinned in this case but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day, the night comes when no man can work. So God provided this child, born blind, to grow up blind, to be blind to up whatever age he was at this point, never having seen the light of day or his mother's face. Now that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? When somebody is born blind or defective in some way or deaf or without legs or arms, it's a sad, terrible situation. And these people had lived with this for the entire life of this man from the time he was a child through his manhood. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, washed and came 
seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is this not he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Ah, he looks like him, but he said, I am the man. Therefore said they to him, How were your eyes opened? How could this be? He answered and said, A man that is called Emmanuel made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. Oh, let's take him to the Pharisees, see if they know about this and why. And it was a Sabbath day when Emmanuel made the clay and opened his eyes. So immediately they said, ah, this man can't be of God. He worked on the Sabbath. He did something on the Sabbath. This can't be a man of God, verse 16. He keeps not the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was division among them. So, well, you know, it did happen. And he sinned, breaking the Sabbath, according to their rules. They say to the blind men again, What do you say of him, that he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, till they called the parents of him that had received his sight. You see, the answer is beginning to come out. Here was a baby born blind. I'm sure the father and the mother thought, why? I'm sure the relatives and the neighbors thought, why? And the Pharisees thought, somebody sinned. Now we begin to read the story maybe 40 years later, or however old the man was, the answer begins to come. It's a very important answer. It became a big spiritual issue with the Pharisees, the leaders of the people of that day, and with the neighbors. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he'd been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. They just tried to pass it off. Ah, that's baloney. That's just a story. That can't have happened. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. That's, that's all we know. We had a blind kid, and now he can see. By what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who has opened his eyes, we don't know. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. We're going to get this fellowship if we say anything. So we'll go ask him. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Then again they called the man that was blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. You can make your judgments all you want, but I was blind, this man came and told me what to do, and now I can see. Then said they to him again, what did he to you? How did he open your eyes? They want to know all the whys and wherefores. He answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? <laughs> That's a good question. 
They didn't like that. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. So the self-righteousness came out with all their whys and their questions. They weren't going to admit that Christ could be God or the Son of God. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he came from or where he is. The men answered and said to them, Why herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he has opened my eyes? Can't you just wake up and smell the roses? Now we know that God hears not sinners. God doesn't hear sinners. That's a direct quote they were making from Scripture. Now, do we sin? Yes, we do. But blessed is the man to whom God does not impute sin because he is sanctified, set apart, called, set aside, and the blood of Christ covers his sins. And even though he may still make mistakes out of weakness or whatever, God is willing to overlook it and to cover it under the blood of Christ. doesn't mean we ought to continue to sin, that grace may abound. No. But God is willing to forgive us. God hears not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and does his will, him he hears, even though he may still sin from time to time. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? Since Adam and Eve, we've never heard a vision being restored to somebody born blind. Now this is becoming a big deal, isn't it? Do we begin to see why God allowed this? A testimony that his son, very God, was on the earth. It's a big important reason that the parents... Relatives and friends could never comprehend as they saw this little boy growing up, wandering around, bumping into trees, and not being able to see anything. It's a tough life this little kid had lived. But God had a very important purpose in mind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Do you believe there are going to be signs and wonders and miracles done at the end? Yes, there will be, by God's people, true signs and wonders and miracles. And also lying signs and wonders and miracles by Satan and his men. It's going to be very difficult to tell the difference. Obedience to the law of God will be the key difference. They answered and said to him, You were altogether born in sins, and do you teach us? They cast him out. Here's a man that had been healed of blindness from birth. And they threw him out on his rear end. They did not want to hear what he had to say. Emmanuel heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Emmanuel said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. This 
young man or this man had been used as a tool for a very, very important message to the world and not just a message to those that were there at the moment, but for those of us who would read these words all down through history and especially now at the end. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Emmanuel said to them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. That man had not sinned and was blind to the glory of God. These people sinned, would not accept him, and their sin remained with them. Powerful lesson there. Powerful lesson. We might have been among those who asked why. Remember the story of David, 2 Samuel 12, how he sinned greatly? Who died? The child that was born of the sin. David didn't die. He had perpetrated the sin, he and Bathsheba together. When David conspired to kill his, her husband, he tried to get him to go home, brought him in on leave from the army, tried to get him to go home so that people wouldn't think that she got pregnant somehow other way. But he slept on the porch and wouldn't even go in the house. Honorable man said, those guys out there can't be with their wives. I won't either. Rare man. Either he suspected something, or he was a very rare man. And even if he did suspect something, he was still pretty rare. God said, because you caused him to be killed, the sword will never depart from your house. That was the first punishment that came on David. But the second was that the child would die. Did the, did the child sin? No. David had sinned. God was working with David at the time, not the child. Now, David suffered loss, but it was the kid that died. And David had to repent very, very deeply of his sin and ask for forgiveness and mercy. And God gave it. But the child died anyway. You might say, well, why did he let the child die? Why not just kill David? Well, David was king over Israel. David was being used of God. He had been separated, sanctified of God. And God was not going to give up on David. So even though David sinned, he was not the one who suffered the ultimate penalty there, but the child was. Now, sometimes things happen that seem very, very hard and difficult to understand. But God sometimes has a purpose way beyond anything we could understand. And notice David's attitude about this. When the child was brought down sick, God had waited quite a while here to punish David, hadn't he? Through nine months of the child being born, and no telling how old the child was when it happened, and then he sent Nathan to him in the first part of chapter 12 to explain that he was the one that had sinned. It was quite a ways down the road before 
Anybody understood why or what was about to happen? I imagine a lot of rumors had gone around about David and Bathsheba and Uriah uh, through Israel, don't you? And probably people had questioned who sinned here and who, why did this happen and so on and so forth. And then it came time for the punishment to come on the child and in that sense on David and Bathsheba as well. And probably the servants were whispering, you know, well, you know what they did, and now the child's about to die. And all kinds of accusations might have been made. I don't know what wasn't there, but notice what David said. The child became sick in verse 15. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And he stayed there and fasted for seven days for the child. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he would not hear our voice. Now will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead. He'll just get even worse once he knows the child is dead. But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said uh, to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Eternal and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. and When he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants to him, What thing is this that you have done? You did fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, you did rise and eat bread. This seemed cold and hard to them. You should be in even deeper mourning now that he's not just sick but dead. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? God might change his mind if I fast and pray and might not cause him to die like he's told me is going to happen. Maybe he'll change his mind. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted his wife, and then they had another child. But there was still a great loss there. Remember what we read there in Psalm 31 at the beginning about how we should always glorify and thank God and, and look to him? David is a living testimony to that. He didn't get bitter. He knew he had sinned. He knew what God's pronouncement was. And he fasted and prayed that maybe that could be changed. And when God said no, even to one whom he loved very dearly, and God even stated that David was a man whom he loved because of his wholehearted attitude, his deep repentance, his devotion to God, his trust and belief in God, so that even when David sinned grievously, the love of God never departed from him. And God did put some sentences upon him, carried them out. But David, David never wavered in that thing. So that's God's answer. But once God's given his answer, I'm going to get up, I'm going to wash myself, and I'm going to eat, I'm going to get on with life. That is God's answer. So he continued to praise God and comforted his wife. 
and that God's will had been done. God's will seemed pretty grievous to Bathsheba, I'm sure. Well, it's easy to second guess. But sometimes it's better just to say, I know God is in charge, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what he says back there in Romans 8. Maybe I should read that and close right there. Romans 8. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, tough times that come upon us, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Some pretty grievous things listed there. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. God's people again are going to be accounted as sheep for the slaughter. There will be those who kill them thinking they do God's service here at the end. So it doesn't matter what comes on us. Sometimes it seems terrible, awful, hard. How could... God be God, and these things happen. And yet he has a purpose, sometimes very hard to understand or know why. But we don't always need to know all the answers why until maybe way down the road. Like the people who had a child born blind and wondered why. And there was no answer. For 40, 45 years, who knows how long but it was done for a very, very specific purpose by God, not because of sin. But he had something he wanted to work out to his glory, and no man could know the answer to that until it was time for it to be revealed. So we're going to suffer, and people have suffered. The things mentioned in verse 35, but those things cannot separate us from God and his love. The only danger is that we separate ourselves from God and don't give him the love we need to give him. David didn't do that under terrible trial and trouble, even though he had sinned and bore a great deal of guilt. And he might have even expected God to kill him. And I am sure that as he lay on the ground and prayed for seven days, he said, this child didn't sin, Father. I did. Take me instead of the child. I can't stand here today and think for a moment he didn't pray, take me instead of the child. God said, no, I have a job for you to do. I'm going to take the child. And when it happened, he accepted that. He said, okay, Father, that's your answer. I'm going to get up and go on about the business you've given me to do. And that's what we have to do. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Emmanuel, our Lord. He is going to love us all the way through all of these things. They have come. They will come. But God's going to love us. And the hairs of our head are numbered. And we can rejoice that God is God. And glory that we know Him. Because the world has time and chance. And they don't know what to do with it. They wring their hands in despair, saying, why, 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 why me, why us? And there is no answer other than, hey, time and chance. Happens to them all. But when something happens to us, we can know that God has a big, powerful, overriding purpose in it that may be beyond our grasp and ability to understand. It may have been hard for those early New Testament Christians to see one after the other of the apostles crucified, hung, burned in oil as John was, but it didn't hurt him. One by one, see them killed. Do you think maybe they might have thought, is God really here? Why? Maybe the answer was not obvious to them at the time. They suffered and died that we might be strengthened and know that God is God and that He can resurrect them and is going to. And the hope that we have is of the resurrection. God has promised it. I promise those people will be in it. And it gives us hope that we too can be in it. So he has a great overriding purpose, even though sometimes things may seem unbelievable, insurmountable, and beyond us to comprehend and understand. But it's okay. We don't have to understand everything now. Now each and every one of us, when bad things happen, needs to examine not those to whom they happen to and put a judgment on them about what they might have done, but each of us needs to examine me and say, things are happening. God is punishing his church. God is spewing us out. Terrible things are happening. Blessings haven't returned. What can I do? How can I help? How can I prevent these things from continuing and more? Well, some of them are going to happen to fulfill the purposes of God. The two that deliver God's message most powerfully to the world are going to die. Be killed on purpose. Now, we know that ahead of time, and we know what's going to happen, and we can already answer why, can't we? to astound the world when they're resurrected three and a half days later. That's why. And to stop their party in mid-drink. That one's easy. We know the answer ahead of time. Some of these others are far more difficult. But we need to understand and know that everything we go through, the trying of silver and gold, through the fire of refinement, 
is necessary to mold us and to make us into pure silver and gold that God wants. So it's not just a lesson or a lesson only for whatever family might be involved in whatever disaster might occur, but it's that we all might learn to trust God and look to Him and turn with our whole heart and trust Him with every part of our lives. That is an overriding lesson that we all have to learn over and over and over again. And it seems we never quite get it fully. So these things have to be repeated. But we do know God's promises are in this book that if we will seek Him with our whole heart, it's going to turn around. And women will see their husbands alive and husbands, their wives alive and their children. And the lame will be healed. The deaf will hear and the blind will see. And God will turn and smile and bless his people as they have never been blessed before. And there's a great purpose, meanwhile, in everything that happens. And it doesn't happen that he knows about it and passes on it because he numbers the very hairs of our head. And he knows. And he has a purpose and a reason. Some why we might understand immediately. Some why we must wait for the answer on. But we better be careful in sitting in judgment of anyone other than the one we can do something about. And that's ourselves. So let's not fall into that pit of saying, well, why did God allow this and who's he trying to straighten out, you know? It's easy for human beings to go there. We do it all the time. Let's not be guilty of that. Let's get ourselves straightened out. He who is without sin casts the first stone. And I'm not saying anybody is going there. I'm not saying anybody has gone there. I'm saying let's be sure we don't go there either in this circumstance or any other that comes along. It's just when something like this does happen, we all need to be sure that we think correctly, we think rightly, and we correct ourselves. And that when one hurt, we all hurt. Because that's what coming to love one another in the love of God is all about. So we have those right now that we know and love who are hurting. And I hope we hurt with them. And I hope we make the changes we need to make. I need to take it personal. You need to take it personal. And not throw rocks at anybody else whatsoever, but say, you know, Daryl hasn't turned with his whole heart to God yet. Daryl still has his faults and his problems. And my brethren sometimes suffer because of my sins. I need to change. I need to overcome and grow. But God can bless us all. And if we all take that approach, we're eventually going to get to the heart and the mind and the attitude that God wants us to have. And he's going to turn and smile on us and bless us. And these tragedies will stop among those whom he has called aside. They will continue with our brothers who go into the tribulation if we don't go there with them. And it's going to be a sad day for that to happen. 
But we've been given opportunity now. We can count it a blessing that we understand now why what is happening to the church has happened and most do not. And we have opportunity to be blessed beyond what a lot of our brothers will not have. It will be made available to them at some time, but most are going to reject it for whatever reason. Ninety percent will reject and go into the tribulation. That's a sad thing. That's the way God said it's going to be. And it's going to take that for them to repent and turn to God with their whole heart. And they may have to lose their life in this life in order to gain it eternally. God has given you and me, through this knowledge, opportunity to save it now and eternally. We can have both. What an incredible blessing that is. So we can't glory in ourselves, but if we're going to glory in anything, let's glory in that we do know God, we do understand, and respond to him in the way that he wishes to be responded to. So, yes, there is much to learn here. But we need to be very, very careful in how we approach it and be sure that we learn what God wants us to learn instead of being self-righteous or anything else. I never doubt God. No matter how dark it gets, He loves us. And He said, we'll go through all these things in Romans 8, but He'll still love us anyway. But you know, it is our going through the trials and troubles that causes us to love Him the way we're supposed to. Not as we want, but as He wants. It isn't His love that is in question. Isn't it funny how human beings will question God's love when things go bad? And His love is never in question or in doubt. He said nothing will separate us from His love. It is our love for Him that is always where the doubt lies. It is our faith and trust in Him where the doubt lies. And therefore, we go through all the things that we have to go through to refine us and give us the pure gold and silver that He is seeking. So let's question ourselves anytime troubles come, and say, what do I need to do to make my love for God what it ought to be? It was our love for God that lacked is the reason he blew this church apart. It was our dedication to him that lacked and our commitment to him. So, really, it was our fault. He only did what was necessary to hopefully wake us up. If we don't wake up now, we're going to wake up in the tribulation Boy, that's a tough way to go. So let's learn what we can from a very tragic situation and always maintain our love for God and make our love for God what it ought to be. Because he did send his son because he loved not only the whole world, but he called us and has set us aside and has a special interest in us because he wants us as the bride of his son to help teach the world so that they too might be saved. What an incredible opportunity and blessing that is. Let's seize it 
Let's not let it get away from us. Let's make the changes we need to make. If there's anything that Marty and her family could hope for, it would be that Garrick not die in vain. But that God might could use it as a tool to shake us awake and to help us be what we need to be. If we blow it off and say, oh, it was just time and chance and somebody in the family must have done something wrong, we lose a great opportunity and his life is wasted on us. But if we use it to help turn us around, to turn us to God, it would be nice for Garrick to come up in the resurrection and say, what impact did my death have? Did anybody change? Did anybody grow? Did anybody overcome? Or was it wasted? I'd love to be able to give him a big hug and say, Garrick, you sure helped change me. What you went through, what your family went through, was not wasted.